Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Sensuous Sounds of InfoSec, where we discuss all things information, all things security, and all things information security. I'm Ben Maliso. And I'm Matt Snotty. And Matt, what do you do when there's an incident? An incident? Yeah. Well, you respond. Good call. So let's <laughs> talk about incident response, shall we? Okay, sure. Let's talk about incident response. Have you ever had an incident occur, Ben? Oh, I have. I've I've had lots of incidents, and some of them were even at work. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I've been I've been involved in incident response for golly over twenty years, almost twenty five years now. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, first on the physical side, um, uh, back in my military days when mm -hmm. uh, we'd run both real incident response activities and test uh, the, the, the exercises for major incident response. Uh, and I gotta say, of all the things that I complain about the military, uh, one of the things they can actually really do well is exercise, the testing stuff, mm -hmm. the practice, how you're gonna play. Right. Um, and then later on, uh, as part of the InfoSec team at DARPA HQ, uh, I helped set up our incident response uh, checklist and procedures and uh, and documentation. Okay, it was uh, it was a lot of fun. How about you? You do this for a living? Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, incident response kind of goes hand in hand with a lot of IT stuff, with a lot of uh, forensic stuff, with with, with security. In general, as as a practicing security consultant, yeah, there a whole lot of of what we do and what we think about is responding to incidents. And now I'm curious with with your history, what what types of incidents have you been involved in, or have you exercised in preparation for? Uh, I, 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 let me pull out some of the highlights. Remember the love okay. bug, Herbie, the the Volkswagen. Or oh no, you're not, talking about not the, uh... that love bug. <laughs> Damn, did you just date yourself though? And the funny thing is, I know that in your mind, it's not even the Lindsay Lohan Herbie. You're thinking oh, no, of no, the no. original Herbie from the, like the '60s and '70s, aren't you? Right, right. I yes, know yes. it. I see. Vote, did you have the Matchbox Matchbox car of Herbie? Oh gosh, probably. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I, did, I, know, yeah. I know I had Evil Knievel and, and all those as well. But uh, yeah, oh, sorry. The Evil sorry. That was a whole series of okay with zip strips. Yeah, all right, all right. Now <laughs> I'm talking about the here. "I love you" virus, dude. Don't, yes, yes, okay. yes. Ninety nine, right? Nineteen ninety nine. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a major um, uh, virus slash Trojan worm. slash yeah. Uh, yeah worm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a form of malware that that became very prolific across the world. Yeah, so you, yeah. So you were around for that. I w I was working at, at DARPA, and uh, it was it was fascinating because, um, as sometimes happens, do you know when I learned of the incident? When? It wasn't while I was at work. It was while I was going to work. I was stepping onto onto the bus. And the radio on the bus was playing the local radio station. And even the local radio station was talking about how everyone was getting these emails from their boss with the subject <laughs> line, I love you. <laughs> it wow. had made okay. the news already. And yeah. this must have been this must have been six or seven AM on the East Coast. 
and as we found out later, you know, and do all the after action, you uh, we we know that it originated in Europe, or it first took hold prolifically in Europe and spread as people started opening their emails as the sun was coming up. So you can actually follow the dateline. That's why the people in California weren't hit as hard because they had a lot more forewarning than the people on the East Coast. Okay. So a little background on what that worm was. So that was a email that propagated by when you open the email, um, it read your contact list and then it, it, it sent itself further down the down the chain by just sending itself blasting out to every contact uh, you had saved in your email. Correct. And it had the subject line, I love you. And mm -hmm. the stupid thing was everybody was opening it. And the act okay. of opening it was what it uh, needed in order to propagate, which is why, mm -hmm. you know, I can't stand when folks in our profession get uh, wrapped around the axle about trying to put nomenclature to malware. It doesn't really matter. But there's all these arguments over, is it a worm? Is it a virus? Well, a virus yeah. needs active participation of the user, <laughs> but a worm can self-propagate. But it doesn't really have a payload. It's just meant to overtake your resources, blah, blah, blah. Doesn't right. matter. Right. The thing, yeah. the thing copied itself when it was opened, and then it sent itself out. And it was, yep. it, the only real attack surface it had was eating up all of your memory and resources on your email server, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So, yeah, a form of a denial of service in, in essence. Correct. But, but largely that's, that's in, in the grand scheme of malware, especially as we sit in 2022, where we have some very dangerous things out there, this one was pretty benign. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, but we didn't, nobody knew that at the time. And it was a great cause for panic. And, and everybody loves to overreact. And right. the beauty part of incident response is that there's always that adrenaline moment when mm -hmm. we get to swing it down. It's the one time IT nerds get to pretend to be heroes. <laughs> right, right, right. We put on our capes, we hit yeah. the ground running, and, and off we go. So so that was an incident. Uh, and so, and, and you were working at a government agency then. So you Correct. had some resources and you probably had some inside knowledge or some inside track on, on what all was going. So You'd think. talk to me. <laughs> You'd think. So, no, we so were just contractors. And um, at that stage of the game, and I, you know, I'm just not, I'm not revealing anything here. Uh, we, we, you know, we, did, we didn't have any special process. We didn't have any special procedure. We didn't have any, we didn't have any insight beyond what anybody else had at that point. Really? Um, okay. Yeah. Oh, this is 1999. Everybody was making it up as they went along. Sure. And yeah. um, and I think that was part of the interesting aspect of it is it sort of shaped how we'd respond to future activities of of such type and others. Um, yep. And even at that same point, you know, without having any centralized authority saying do this, do that, and here's what you should do. We had already started information sharing. Everybody had a network of colleagues. It's a, a fairly small community. And people were mm -hmm. picking up the phone and talking to each other and you know, not emailing and, and figuring out how to go out of, out of band communication. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And, uh, and then reacting in, in, in that way. And it helped us. Uh, establish the procedures that we'd be using later on. And me being the non-technical guy, I was completely, you know, next to useless, but I did the one thing that 
I try to recommend that everybody else do in incident response. I did the documentation. You need yep. someone to be the secretary. Keep the yes. timeline, know what's being done and when and how, because that's going to tell you later on whether it worked or not, whether what you did can be improved. And I think right. even now you, you have pretty established procedures. I mean, everybody and their cousin publishes a standard of how, you know, ISO's got one, SANS has got one. They all have standards on how to do incident response. But in it is always documentation and then after action, going back and revising and determining whether what you did was proper. Right, right. Yeah, having an incident response plan is, is critical in today's uh, IT and security environments because, um, yeah, it, it, it keeps you from having something get out of control and it also keeps your head on your shoulders and keeps you from uh, completely losing your mind because you've got something going on and um, no one knows what to do about it and no one knows how to treat it. And, and, and the, basically what you were describing back in 99 when this incident occurred with no plan, yeah, you're just winging it. But nowadays people don't like that. They like the assurance that uh, someone's going to take charge and someone's going to have some kind of control and some some measures in place to, to, to respond properly. And the overreaction, as you well know, can cause more damage than the attack itself. Yes, yes. And <laughs> I know we've talked I'm sorry, yeah, go I was going to say, if you, if, if you get someone who's overzealous and starts shutting off critical things or, or, yep. or closing down stuff, and, and you have un, unexpected downtime, and some of those uh, things could be generating revenue for an organization, and they are unexpectedly offline because someone thought, well, this is the proper thing to do without asking, is it actually what we want to do? And it's very funny. I know uh, uh, in an earlier episode of the show with, with uh, when Robin was, was co-hosting, uh, we talked about the Colonial Pipeline incident. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it seemed pretty apparent at the time that Colonial shut down all of their IT operations, not because the... The, they were forced to, not because they were kicked offline by the attacker. It was part of their response was to shut down. Mm, and the okay. really nuanced thing in hindsight, looking at that, that might have been uh, actually in Colonial's favor, not for IT reasons, not for security reasons, but for political reasons. It drew a lot of public attention and public opinion against the attackers when mm. otherwise I think the attackers had a pretty good attack methodology for making Colonial look bad. Uh, mm. I don't know exactly what it was the attackers had, but I think Colonial overreacted in that fashion. It happened to be in Colonial's favor, weirdly enough. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, and, and and Colonial was a uh, ransomware attack that became Correct. Well, very, very well known. Uh, see, now here's the and here's the thing: is it wasn't just ransomware; it was ransomware coupled with exfiltration. The attackers mm, okay. had had first copied all of Colonial stuff, including okay. their sensitive data, then locked Colonial out, and then threatened or offered Colonial to sell back their data or they were going to make it public. And to me, I think Colonial's response is indicative of what someone would do when they don't want the thing to be published. And if it does get published, they want to paint the attacker in the worst light. 
I, I'm kind of wondering if what the attackers had was similar to what happened in the Sony attack, the the Sony attack where the emails were breached. Uh, and, right, right. And it made the executives look horrible because their emails were full of sexist, racist comments. Um, yeah. Even though it was accurate, Sony still said we're the victim, right? And I'm kind of wondering if something in the colonial material was of that same toxic nature. Uh, and I don't think that ever really came out in the news. Yeah, because uh, there was a, a definite um, story that was the, the through line regarding colonial. Um, and and um, uh, the stuff that was published was all, uh, it, it was managed very carefully to make the story line up with what they wanted it to appear to be. Uh, and and not necessarily give away other, any other details because yeah I'm, I I I know the highlights I know the um, you know the headlines about Colonial but I've never really done a deep dive on what all actually occurred there or or what the damage was or what the uh, uh, attackers were looking to do. Yeah no I I have only scratched the surface on it too I, you know I get pretty much all of my news about that sort of thing from Krebs because oh yeah because yeah. He, great resource he does, you know yeah exactly. Um, so, but anyway, uh, so yes, we, you need a process, you need a procedure. Where, where do you yep. get yours when you help a client execute an incident response? Somebody calls you up and says, we got a problem and you don't even know what the heck it is yet. What steps do you follow there? Oh, well, um, a lot of my steps come from experience. Um, you know, I, for my bigger clients that want it, I, I, I will actually put together a formal incident response plan, which is in essence, a binder that says, okay, in this case, this is, you know, uh, what we do in this case, or in that case, that's what we do. But one of the key things is always, um, if you have the chance before an incident and you put, and you can put any kind of a plan together, uh, one of the key things is always to identify who's going to be in charge. A number one. Um, someone's got, once you identify that an incident has occurred, someone's got to run the show. And sometimes it's me, uh, even though I'm an outside contractor, sometimes it's a, a senior manager. Sometimes it's a director of, of it or, or of security or something like that. But putting, I was just going to ask you, is, is that, is that a difficult position for them to put you in? Uh, because you are not a member of the company. You don't have a fiduciary stake in it. Right. Do they grant you that authority to say shut down operations because this thing is so dramatic or do they second guess I, you? I have clients that will listen to me no matter what. Yes. That, that, Excellent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even though I'm not an, a, an employee or, or a shareholder or any kind of management in the company. Uh, yeah, I carry the, the, the weight of, of, of my contract with them carries the authority to, to make those types of decisions and then they, they, they'll go with it. But in general, um, yeah, as an outside consultant, I, I always want to make sure that they're aware, at, at the very least, aware that, of what I'm getting ready to do before I do it. So they have, you know, uh, uh, the ability to veto whatever I'm getting ready to do. But nine <laughs> times out of ten, uh, yeah, they, they they trust me because I have longstanding relationships with a lot of my clients. It's not like I'm just walked into a client and a month later I'm doing this type of stuff for them. Sure, Most of sure. my clients, I have 10, 15 year long relationships with them. So uh, there, there, there's that stability and that uh, uh, trust that we have. Have you codified this plan? Is this, is this, some, I mean, you said you make a binder. Uh, is this something you've written down, you copy and paste yes. from somewhere else or? I'm fortunate or unfortunate enough to have seen enough things that um, uh, a, a lot of my planning is in my head, but yeah, so, some <laughs> clients do actually want the, 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 the piece of paper, but yeah. Um, 
Note to audience, <laughs> do not keep your plan in your head. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, it, it definitely not recommended for, especially if, if you have more than one person on, the, on that, that's going to be doing it. If you have a team of people, obviously communication is key. But um, a lot of my clients are also smaller. And so they just don't want that formality of it. And once they um, bring me on, then they, you know, let me just take the reins on on, on handling any type of incident. They just hand it over to change of operational controls, what they call it in the military. We're going to chop mm -hmm. over to Matt. Matt's yep. running the show now. Yeah. Yep. And then I take over. Um, but, uh, yeah, obviously best practices, write it down and then have, yeah. have that. And uh, having years of, of having written incident response plans, one of the biggest things is always you don't want to formalize it too much. Because you can put too much detail in an incident response plan to where it's it's not useful, because it it it's not flexible, it's not adaptable. To, because every incident is somewhat different, right? Right. Yeah. So you yeah. can write down an incident response plan that covers the "I love you" bug or a ransomware colonial pipeline type thing, but then when you have an incident that's something else entirely, your incident response plan is is useless because it's if it's too. Uh, tightly written, then then it, it 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 carries no real real bearing on the actual incident that you're responding to. So you have to kind of be generic about it, writing your incident response plan. And to that end, the high points of it are, are you, you could memorize the high points of an incident response plan very easily. You know, um, you know the high points would be you know assess the situation, determine what's going on. Is uh, you know is something act actively being attacked or is the attack already over? Uh, did we lose data? Did we uh, uh, do we have a chance of recurrence? Who needs to be told? Who's in, who's running the show and in charge? And then you clean it up, address it, uh, resolve the incident, document it, make sure everybody knows what's happened, make sure it's not going to happen again, close it out, and move on. Good. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. Except I would throw one more thing in there just for oh boy. <laughs> health and human safety, you know, determine oh, whether there's a, a, a pending threat to health and human safety. Sure. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And that is a uh, consider. Yeah. Some of my larger clients. Yeah. That's a big thing because they have large enough buildings that um, they have formal, uh, you know, fire escape procedures and stuff like that in particular in manufacturing where fire is a real, not just an imaginary threat. It's a real threat. I have a, yeah. a, a yeah. manufacturing client that does a large volume of, of high temperature baking and their first week that their facility was open, they had a fire in their oven, actually caught fire. And, and, you know, we, we had procedures in place already for health and human safety regarding the fire. But I was like, I had never actually realized that in this high stakes of an environment, these things actually happen to people and, yeah. and, and, and they had beaten it into me. When I was putting everything together, the health and human safety aspect, the the, the fire, the having uh, outside phone lines for uh, and, and procedures to get the fire trucks in and stuff like that, and I always thought, eh, nah, it, it, that, that that that's all imaginary. That's never actually going to happen. It actually happened the first week that I was working mm -hmm. with them, and, so, and it becomes even more uh, uh, imminent in our world as we're using more PLCs and we're using the IOT stuff. And, and, you know, every, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, I think everything's got an IP address. Yep. Yeah. The internet yeah. of things. Yeah. All the, yeah. And, and, and yeah, case in point that, uh, that oven that caught fire has 30 IP addresses. <laughs> it's a 300, it's a 300 foot long oven. And oh my goodness! Thirty IP addresses just for the oven, and that's not even counting all the other. Their actual um, uh, IP space is uh, sixteen thousand IP addresses. 
So <laughs> it's not a small. What, is that a class B? I for, I for, what is um, it? Uh, it's a. Oh, I, 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 yeah. I think it's a class. Uh, yes, it is a class B. Yeah, it's a one seventy two. Yeah, yes. that's pretty. Yeah. Okay. Wow. That's okay. All right. So yeah, I I agree with you. Uh, broad points of incident response are not going to be different, regardless of your industry, regardless right. of what type of attack it is, regardless of what your jurisdiction is. The same broad steps are the same broad steps. I I and regardless of what it's even. Whether it's even technical or not, I mean, it, it, oh, yeah. it doesn't necessarily have to even be technical. You know, obviously, as uh, CISSPs and security professionals, we like to focus on the technical incidents, but there are incidents of any kind of nature out there. That, and you and had a fire. A fire is about as physical as it gets. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, and, yeah. and as non-technical as it gets. <laughs> exactly. You know, good. So. Um, anything that you would say in particular that you would include in your checklist that you think might not be stressed as much in other standards for incident response? Because I've got a couple. I'm sure you do. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that the, the one biggest thing is always communication. Anytime mm -hmm. there's an incident, uh, communication always seems to be the thing that is overlooked the most because your stakeholders, your senior management, and your technical people don't always communicate that well. And in fact, sometimes they're in different buildings or they're in different states um, and everybody needs to be on the same page and they all need to be willing to talk to each other in an open and honest format because sometimes technical people think they're not going to understand what I'm saying. Uh, senior management might think these guys aren't going to understand the stakes that are, that, that are at play here. And, and so everybody's got to be able to trust and, and communicate. That's one of my biggest I love ones. That. I love that. Um, I'm going to piggyback on yours because mine ties into that. Mine is use multiple redundant technologies at different levels mm -hmm. for everything. Don't rely on high tech to pull you through. And that ties into communication because when you say communicate, that might mean on the phone, it might mean via email, it might mean through some centralized, uh, uh, you know, texting capability, and it might mm -hmm. mean couriers carrying notes from person to person, simply <laughs> because depending on the nature of the incident, you may or may not have that technology available. That technology may be denied to you in the moment. Very much so, yes. The incident may affect your ability to communicate. I always say in my disaster response kit, I want a pad and a pencil or a grease yeah. pad, you know, <laughs> I, right. I, there's gotta be another way, something that doesn't have, you know, bits and bytes in it that doesn't require power in any shape uh, in order to convey information. And that can be record keeping for later, or that can be communication to another party. Yep. yep. Yeah, completely. And, and I think along with all that, like you said earlier, documentation is always one of the big things because, again, as technical people in general uh, and, and, and ourselves in particular, we don't like to take the time necessarily to write stuff down because it, it, it's, it's A, it's time consuming. B, it's uh -huh. just, you know, uh, it, it's, it, we're, we're not always the best writers. And C, <laughs> we often rely on our own memories for stuff. And and, you, and and we think, oh, I'll never forget that that I did this or that I made that change or something like that. And then you know, fast forward a couple of weeks, and you're sitting there going, 
did I change this or did I? <laughs> oh gosh! Or did, or did, or did my I think there's down? a D. I think there's a D. There's another reason we don't like okay. doing it. Uh, it's it's because that's not solving the problem. In an incident, right. when you get that adrenaline, you you want to be working on the the fix, right? Right. Right. And stopping to do record keeping delays that even you know yes. an extraneous amount um but yes and that was that was the next one i was going to jump into is that couple of weeks later now you've done expert testimony for for uh court activity more than yes. once mm -hmm. what is the worst form of evidence what is the worst most uh, uh attackable form of evidence I was almost always uh, eyewitness accounts. Yep. <laughs> our memory yeah. sucks. Human yeah. being, you know, our RAM is terrible. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, you can have, uh, you know, and, and they've done testing on this, you know, psychological yeah. testing where, where they have something occur and someone's wearing a red shirt and then they bring the, the person in who observed the person with the red shirt and they say, okay, what color shirt were they wearing? Uh, blue? Uh, yellow? Yep. You know, they, 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 yep. they can never, if they're not specifically told, remember the shirt color, they have no idea what color it was, and then they just come up with random things, or, or you know, or their mind uh, uh, overrides. Your mind will create the story for you, and th yeah. and this yeah. is this has been uh, seen in cases where people have been convicted on murder charges, and people have gone to yeah. death row, where yeah. the witnesses have created stories in their head, and they and the witness fully believes it and will pass a polygraph. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that was going to be my next lie, thing. I believe it. Yeah, ex exactly. Um, then that was going to be my, my other thing is the after action has mm -hmm. got to include transcribing all of that and gathering all of the records from all the different sources and putting it into a timeline that can be reconstituted and reused later on to include notes to yourself. And yes. it's funny because yeah. um, I, I forget which incident was which, but... Um, at one point, we had an, uh, another incident, and, and we went and did something. And um, I said, oh, the checklist says to do this, or the procedure says to do this. This is dumb. Let's do it this way instead. And we did it that way, and it didn't work, and it caused a problem. And I'm like, so you oh, second okay. guessed the incident response plan. I went back, and I looked at the notes. <laughs> From the uh, first, you know, incident of why we wrote the procedure, and it said we tried this. It did not work. <laughs> do not do this in the future. And I, well, you had I, already had, I had it. forgotten that. I had totally forgotten that. Yeah. Yep. Uh, now, 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 the next question is: Were you the one who wrote the original plan? Yes. Oh, yeah. oh, oh, yeah. Oh, and I wrote the note because I, <laughs> when I went back and I read the note and I saw my initials on it, I was like, oh, oh funny shit. All right. <laughs> I was smarter than myself, or I thought I was smarter than myself. <laughs> yep, yep. Yeah, yep. yeah. For any given incident, you know, uh, someone has probably already seen the problem. Someone has probably already worked the problem, and someone's probably already solved the problem. And a lot of what we do as technical people can be shortcutted by uh, just finding the right person who has seen it before and, and fixed it before, or has seen it before and and knows what what pitfalls and traps to avoid because. Uh, yeah, if you do this, this other thing will, will happen and you won't get the result that you're looking for. Now, I could have been even smarter than that and put that note into the procedure, into the checklist, <laughs> so that anyone referring to it later would say, this might seem easier, but don't do it yeah. because it'll, you know, see notes later after the incident. You know? <laughs> right, yeah. right. Yeah. 
But yeah, uh, uh, I, I was speaking to uh, a group of uh, forensic students going for their master's degree in forensics just recently. And I opened up my talk by introducing myself and saying, I am a professional storyteller. I tell stories for a living. Those stories are supported by the evidence that I collect and the forensics that I perform. But in the end, I'm creating a story that is as accurate as possible to meet everything that I have seen uh, that, that has come into evidence. And then I tell my story to whoever is listening, but whether it's uh, an attorney, a judge, a jury, stakeholders, senior management, whatever. But in essence, I'm a storyteller. And that's all evidence is, is substantiation yep. of a tale, because you're going to have one tale and opposing counsel is going to have another tale. And they're right. either going to try to punch holes in your substantiation, or they're going to try to provide their own that makes their tale more believable. Yep. Yep. Yeah. yeah. In other words, we can agree on the evidence. We can agree on the facts. My conclusions are one thing. Your conclusions might be another thing. But I can, you know, make whatever my, you know, uh, story that I need to tell to make 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 my conclusion make sense. Which brings up another thing. Uh, you know, we're talking largely about incidents and incident response right now. You like to to, to use the term defer, D F I R, digital forensics incident response or defer. Defer. Or you, <laughs> and you always put that roll that R at the end of it. Defer. <laughs> um, one of my pet peeves of that of those four letters is that they're always grouped together as if digital forensics and incident response are, are, are one and the same. And they're not, they're actually two very different sides of the house. Uh, the digital forensics side, uh, focuses largely on, uh, uh, going back through the evidence of something having happened. Whereas the incident response is much more time sensitive. Usually it's actively, uh, working through a problem that is occurring or has just occurred. The, and, and I always joke that the, the forensics guys are kind of more laid back, whereas the uh, incident response guys are much more high strung because they have to jump on a moment's notice and go take care of something. Whereas the forensics guys can kind of just saunter in after the fact, get all the evidence that they need, write their report and be done. That's why you prefer being the diff in the different. <laughs> I'm right? the DF and not the IR. Yeah. <laughs> We're older. We slowed down a bit. We're not a right. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. But, <laughs> but so, but but anyways, yeah. Regardless, the industry has has lumped the two together, and so we are forever inexorably uh, interlinked uh, with the forensics guys and the incident response guys. And you know, there the, there is a, a case to be made for for why both of those uh, two two industries are are, are linked. Um, but as a as a person who prefers the the forensic side over the incident response side, <laughs> I'll say there is definitely a wall in between our two groups. And I think that's reasonable. And and I, I think it is more sensible to distinguish DF from IR than it is for some of the other things that we try to do, like trying to distinguish between BC and DR. Mm, I mean, yeah, that, yeah, that just yeah. No, I, I'm I'm with you wholeheartedly. They're separate disciplines. They're sep they're separate purposes but they may be brought together to accomplish uh, an overall goal. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the, the, yeah. Yeah, the end result is, um, yeah, yeah all, the, all the things that uh, DFIR do. Now, with BCDR, have you come up with a way to say that, like you say defer? Do you call no, it because it's just dumb. It's just, <laughs> the whole, the whole concept. The <laughs> yeah. I still don't know why we split them out. That's, that's, a, that's an 
uh, an artifact from uh, ITIL, and it's just awful, mm. and it's just so dumb. Um, but no, we'll and we'll get maybe we'll get there in a future episode. <laughs> sure. But I think um, again, we could do this for three hours. But I think this is a pretty mm-hmm. good, concise overview. Uh, anything you want to add that's a kind of a showstopper or the the cherry on top? Oh, uh, uh, no, because if 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 I start to to tell stories about instances, <laughs> you are a storyteller. And, and <laughs> then then yeah, I will definitely go off into into weeds, and we'll be sitting here for hours, and and it'll just bore the, the listeners to tears. Yeah, there, 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 there there's lots of uh, great stories of incidents and and responses to incidents and and lessons learned from incidents that are out there. And um, there are ways to formalize uh, incident response through an incident response plan. Um, and uh, as, as CISSPs, as security professionals, we need to be aware that, that, that these are the types of things that you need to do uh, to be, it's, it's not if you're going to have an incident occur, it's when you're going to have an incident occur. So plan, prepare, uh, and, uh, and formalize it as best you can. That's awesome. I, I couldn't have said it better and I won't try. Um, but I do like the idea of incidents I have known, and we could make a series of those. <laughs> we, we, could, we could do that. Uh, and, and I think, I, I don't think, it, I don't think anyone be bored to tears. I think people like hearing about that. It gives a little bit of yeah. drama, it gives a little bit of flavor to something that may be otherwise pretty dry and mundane in our world. Yeah. Yeah. Because, um, as, as security professionals, we've seen some crazy stuff happen. I know that you have, I've, I, I've seen crazy things that when I tell people, oh yeah, I've had an entire, uh, you know, healthcare database wipe at, will be wiped out because of a command that I issued and then have to have it restored within an hour or something like that. You know, everybody's got dumb stories, but they're all incidents and, and they all had to be responded to. So. And it's useful to learn from somebody else's mistakes, so you don't have to make it yourself. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. And it's always great whenever, uh, yeah, you can see someone else uh, make a mistake instead of you doing it. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, then until next week, I'm Ben Maliso. And I'm Matt Snotty. Join us again for another episode of The Sensuous Sounds of InfoSec. <laughs>